I'm Eric. I'm Jim. I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. And what are we doing, Joe? Okay, so here's the deal. We had a really good question from a listener fairly recently that caused us to think. And the question was, what... <laughs> which, For the first time. <laughs> which is something we rarely do. So let's take advantage of it. Okay, so the question was, what are the most egregious uses of science in the name of scientific racism? Each of us kind of had our own ideas about how we might respond to this, so we decided to make a listicle episode. Now, folks, I didn't know what listicle meant until Jim told me that it's a format of journalism in which you have lists of things, which we're all familiar with. I just didn't know it was called that. The baby boomer had to instruct the millennial? Is this, that what's happening? It's happened? true. This is bad. I'm a Gen X slash millennial. No, you're not. Let's you're, <laughs> you're millennial. I think we should get into you some- You care too much about things. To generational warfare. <laughs> Okay, anyway, so that's the idea, right? We're going to talk about our top five, maybe more than five, most egregious instances of the use of science to promote scientific racism. And I feel like in some ways it's a good interlude to whatever it is that we're doing right now. The problem is that we couldn't come up with a top five, so we picked five and then put them in reverse chronological order. What's number five? Number five on our top five list is Hernstein and Murray's book, The Bell Curve from 1994. Why does it make it onto our list? So The Bell Curve is a very long book. I, True Confessions, actually assigned it the first time that I taught oh. my race and science class. Oh, no. Okay, now tell us why you assigned it. So it's an influential book book that I read when I was in college and then we looked at it again when I was in graduate school in anthropology and it was really influential because it basically said Asians are the smartest Caucasians are the moderate intelligent people and African Americans are the the lowest on the intelligence scale wow. and there's basically nothing that you can do about it there is some overlap on these, the ends of the curves, the bell curves, hmm. but essentially the world is stuck in these intelligence orders. Wow. And that creates a social hierarchy then as a result of the genetic capacity for intelligence and, and performance. It strongly limits what can be done through things like education or social programs. Sure. Yeah. So we read it when I was in college as a hey, isn't this neat? And in anthropology as, hey, look how powerful genetics is for humans. It, in other words, it was uncritical so at the time. Kind of uncritically, yeah. But in my race and science class, we read it to show, hey, this is, this is the state of things and how do you actually combat this? But it's such a long and convoluted book that my students gave up reading it. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, it was really popular. Wasn't it like a New York Times bestseller or something? Am I making I that up? I think so, yeah. It was wildly popular. It it dropped in the early, mid-1990s. What do you think was the broader social effect of that book? The Contract on America. The Contract on America. What, what do you mean, Jim? <laughs> Newt Gingrich's policies to reestablish white supremacy. Yes. <laughs> So after the election of Bill Clinton, Republicans get their act together to take over Congress in 1994 on a thing that Gingrich calls the Contract for America, which basically says we're going to slash social services pretty much across the board. And I think the bell curve is one of the influential books at the same time. It's I don't think it I don't think Gingrich reads it, but it comes out at the same time and basically says the reason biologically why we shouldn't have so much, you know, tax money going into things like education and welfare 
is because essentially people are stuck genetically mm. and there's no real reason to dump money into a problem that can't really be fixed. Okay. Dare I ask what sorts of evidence Hernstein and Murray used to support this claim? They used a G. What? You want to talk about that, Lil Jim? Lil G. Not just a G. They used a Lil G. Lil G. Lil G. Oh, yeah. That's Do you remember Lil G? From the podcast, yes. Why don't we remind listeners what that is? That's the statistical extract of IQ testing that gives you your supposed general intelligence. Mm, right. That was from our Race and Intelligence series. Yes, and in fact, we talked about Hernstein and Murray in the third part of our Race and IQ series. So if you want to go back and listen to what we had to say about it then. And what was their other scientific evidence for that claim? That's right, crickets. <laughs> there wasn't any. <laughs> there wasn't any, but they packed a lot of statistics into that book. Yeah. The Obviously, just weren't based on much of I anything. mean, the basic fault was that we know IQ testing doesn't really measure IQ, right? And right. they totally took it at face value as actually measuring IQ when, in fact, it was measuring things like social conditions and cultural orientation. Okay. And we just talked about Stephen Jay Gould's Mismeasure of Man. It was released in a second edition in 1996 specifically to combat bell curve. All right. So that's number five. Dun, dun, dun. Number four. What's number four? So I got number four. Okay. So this is an out of left field suggestion for this podcast, but there was a time in the 1960s where the hottest um, topic in anthropology was the study of human aggression. Mm. So 1963, uh, an ethologist named Conrad Lorenz. Well, well what's an ethologist? Austria, I was hoping that you would ask. What's an ethologist? So Lorenz is a guy who studies animal behavior to figure out stuff about human behavior. Mm. But he wasn't a primatologist. He didn't study primates mostly. He studied birds. Geese, yeah. Mostly ge yeah, <laughs> um, geese that he kept in his house. He lived with geese and other kinds of birds. Yeah. And then he said, by observing these birds, we can learn a lot about human behavior. So that's ethology. Mm, okay. But his 1963 book is called On Aggression. And basically what Lorenz says is that humans are aggressive. Let's look for the origins of aggression in non-human things. And he finds instances of aggression in fish and birds primarily and lizards and things like that. And then he just interprets that as a hard biological thing that humans share as well. And he attracts a whole lot of followers, including these two other guys who themselves were not scientists, Robert Ardrey and Desmond Morris. Okay. Both Ardrey and Morris, Ardrey's in the United States, Morris was in the UK, both become fabulously well-known Robert Audrey for his 1966 book called The Territorial Imperative, hmm. which basically argues humans are aggressive, which Carl Lorenz has already said. And one of the things that we just do biologically is we defend territory by force if necessary. And then Desmond Morris writes The Naked Ape in hmm. 1967, which is why we often call humans naked apes. And he goes on to lead the London Zoo and then writes a book in 1969 called The Human Zoo. So these three figures together popularized through the late 1960s the idea that humans are innately aggressive, territorial, and tribal. Mm. And that justifies racism. Because basically what that says is that the reason why humans are racist is biologically programmed. 
Mm, like in-group, out-group stuff? Exactly. Uh-huh. So they popularize that idea. The reason why it becomes most problematic isn't just that it's so popular. They make TV series about it. There's even, I want to say there's like a cartoon series that's made. And tellingly, in 1968, Ashley Montague, who we've talked about on this podcast yes. before, saw these three as such a threat that he organized a whole symposium with 14 different biologists and anthropologists simply to try to discredit this aggression stuff because he saw it as this really deeply, terribly rooted thing that was going to make racism worse because it made it natural. It made mm. it biologically demanded. So all this is picked up by a guy named Paul Ehrlich. And the reason why this matters is because Ehrlich is a proponent of the zero population growth movement, mm. which becomes popularized in a book in 1968 called The Population Bomb. Which basically means there's too many people on Earth, we're running out of resources, and we're all going to fight each other. And how are we going to fight each other? We're going to fight each other along racial territories, where we're all going to duke it out because we're all aggressive, racist figures forever and ever. Hmm. There's nothing you can do about it. Amen. So were Ardry Lorenz and Morris actually applying this idea to race, or did their idea get applied by other people to this it's sort of like inevitable racial yeah. conflict. Sometimes they were pretty naked about the fact that races would just be at each other's throats. And we talked about Darwin and the Descent of Man saying that Anglo-Saxons would eventually wipe out all right. these other non-white races. That's the way they talked about it too. Okay. They did. They were also monogenous. They all agreed that humans evolved from non-human ancestors in Africa, but they also essentially thought that once spread out through the earth, these tribes would coalesce along typical racial lines and then would sort of fight it out as the resources were depreciated across the planet. Mm -hmm. I think all this stuff is basically still repeated in evolutionary psychology today. Yeah, no question. The worst parts of it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so that was number four. What's number three. Number three. Number three is, for me, I'm going back into my academic genealogy and I'm grabbing an academic uncle of mine named Carlton Stevens Kuhn. He was the second PhD student trained by Ernest Albert Hooten at Harvard in the physical anthropology program. Kuhn received his PhD in 1928, and at that time he was already working in race. His dissertation was a study of the fundamental racial and cultural characteristics of the Berbers of North Africa as exemplified by the Riffians. He assisted in the racist fight against the desegregation of public schools called for by the 1954 Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board of Education. You mean Ooh. he was like pro-segregation? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yikes. He worked through his cousin, Carlton Putnam, the one-time CEO of Delta oh. Airlines. Putnam was very upset with the Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board, uh -huh. and he spent a lot of time and energy and money arguing against it. And he ended up eventually publishing a booklet in 1961 called Race and Reason, which is largely a massive diatribe against Boazian anthropology and Boazian thought on race. Hmm. Why? Yeah. Because of footnote 11 in Brown v. Board. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> The last item in that key footnote that it's the social science underpinning the decision is, and see generally Murdahl, an American dilemma. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. And Murdahl took his cue on race from Boaz, not from Hooten and the physical anthropologists in the U.S. at that time. 
So Putnam was just infuriated by this. He saw these Jewish anthropologists at mm. Columbia, you know, coming out mm. with this anti-race standard. And so he corresponded, and Kuhn corresponded back and forth. Kuhn managed to convince him in the letters you can see. Kuhn managed to convince Putnam to not lean on Madison Grant and Lothrop Stoddard to very racist eugenicists of the early 20th century in the U.S. and instead to use some obscure authors. And then also Putnam actually got a quote from Kuhn, but it's a hidden quote because he puts it into this booklet as coming from a distinguished scientist younger than I am, <laughs> a scientist not a southerner, who is a recognized international authority on the subject we are considering. Interesting. And what did it say? He quotes Kuhn as saying, about 25 years ago, it seemed to be proved beyond a doubt that man is a cultural animal, solely a creature of the environment, and that there is no inheritance of instinct, intelligence, or any other capacity. Everything had to be learned, and the man or race that had the best opportunity for learning made the best record. The tide is turning. Heredity is coming back, not primarily through anthropologists, but through zoologists. It is the zoologists, the animal behavior men. Conrad Lorenz, are you listening? Oh, yeah. Who are doing it, yeah. and the anthropologists are beginning to learn from them. It will take time, but the pendulum will swing. Uh, he even affected my education on race when my human variation professor at Berkeley in 1972, Vince Sarich, taught me Kuhn's version of polygenism. Mm. Kuhn, in his 1962 book, The Origin of Races, showed five different regional lines of Homo erectus oh. evolving into five, five races, races of modern humans. Oh, okay? boy. The interesting thing about what Kuhn does in this is that based on his interpretation of the fossil record, he sees caucasoids as being the first to evolve into modern humans and that they did this about 200,000 years before Negroids. They were the last to evolve into moderns. He sees that time in grade, essentially, as being time for improvement. So he sees that as the ultimate reason why whites are so much more accomplished and civilized and intellectual than blacks are. Mm. He did get the time differential almost exactly bass-ackwards in that it's the <laughs> Africans who evolved first mm. and the Caucasians who came last. He was still defending these ideas when he wrote his self-serving memoir in 1980. He died the year after Jeez. in 1981. There are a lot of other things that I could give you to put nails in Kuhn's scientific racist coffin, but that should be enough to let him stay on the list. I mean, yep. it's a good reminder that many of these ideas from well-recognized scientists are less than 50 years old yeah. and still kicking around. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, so that was number three. Number two. Number two. Don't worry, folks, I am eventually going to talk. I've got number one and our bonus. But what's number two? Well, I can hear a lot of what Jim just shared with Carlton Kuhn in number two, which is our 19th century figure. It's Ernst Haeckel, a German, who also was basically the most important person to translate Darwin from a scientific audience to a popular audience. Historian of science Bob Richards at the University of Chicago says that more people at the turn of the 20th century learned about evolutionary theory from the writings of Haeckel from any other source, 
even more than learned actually from Darwin. Yeah. Okay. So one wow. of the most influential scientists of the late 19th and early 20th century. And Heckel wanted to develop his own racial anthropology. He was really explicit that he wanted to take ideas that there were these different races that didn't overlap in intelligence. Mm-hmm. Here's a theme. Yep. And show how each of these evolved. So among other things, Heckel was known for drawing these trees, these evolutionary trees, some of which are still in use today in biology classrooms, which just blows my mind. Yeah. And so, of course, Heckel does this with humans, too. So he has what he calls his pedigree of the 12 species of man. Ooh. And he's really out. I mean, it's their species. It, yeah. It's different races aren't subspecies, like Darwin said. Or just gradations, like others have said, they're actually different species. Heckel loved to draw, and he had his students draw things in order to promote them. He was big into the promotion of scientific ideas. So many of the drawings of these 12 species of humans still float around in racist corners of the internet to be used over and over today. Mm. And I bet you can't guess which race is the most evolved. Oh. <laughs> Gee, Eric. <laughs> He's not a Brit, so it can't be Anglo-Saxon, exactly. right? What's interesting is that Was he, it the Germans? You're really close. Was it, it the Aryans? It's kind of a trick question. <laughs> it's basically Europeans. Oh. And within Europeans, he found four branches, Caucasians, Indo-Germanians, hmm. so actually the... Remember the Aryan thesis in yes. India? Oh, how could I forget? Big promoter of that. Mm-hmm. But here's what's interesting about Heckel, because some people see Heckel as directly going toward Nazi eugenics and Nazi race policy. However, he puts Semites on the same level as Caucasians and Indo-Germanians, which is why Heckel's actually not used hmm. by the Nazis, because he's not racist enough. Wow. Ironically. Okay. Or not anti-Semitic enough, I guess. Not anti-Semitic enough, right. There's one quote that I love about Heckel that was given by Leo Tolstoy, the famous Russian author. He said, I believe that Mr. Heckel is the worst and the most harmful of all that I know. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tolstoy is on the right side of history. So just to sum up, Heckel tries to take... Darwinism and evolutionary theory more generally and make it explicitly about racial competition with whites winning the race. Mm. Yeah. Great. Okay. Are you ready for number one? And number one. Remember, not necessarily in order of badness, but in chronological order is Carl Linnaeus. Yay. And I'm going to tell you why, but if you want to learn more about it, you can refer back to one of our earlier episodes. Yeah, I remember him. He was in Race and Enlightenment Part 1. That's right, Part 1 of Race and Enlightenment. So Carl Linnaeus, the ostensible father of modern natural history, interestingly, he didn't actually use the term race for the people groups that he was interested in kind of labeling and talking about, but his magnum opus, Systema Naturae, was like, you know, as we all know, the first Mm -hmm. attempt to classify Basically, all of what he saw as God's creations, animals and plants and fungi and bacteria. He even put minerals in there. And the idea was he wanted to develop a single system that he did develop. It's what we now call binomial nomenclature or the Latin sort of like genus and species names that we still use to label species today. Right. So within that binomial nomenclature, humans are homo sapiens. They're one species. But... In his initial attempt at his first edition of this book in 1735, 
he broke the species down further into four subdivisions, which is noteworthy because that's something he didn't do with any of the other species groups in this giant book. That's interesting. Except for quartz. <laughs> except for minerals. <laughs> except for the mineral quartz. That's funny. Okay, and these, are, these were the four varieties. So white Europeans, brown, or he later referred to them as yellow Asians, red Americans, and black Africans. So here he's differentiating the groups by skin color and continental origin. And again, remember, he didn't actually use the term race for these subdivisions. He didn't really talk about their origins per se, so he wasn't saying anything about monogenism versus polygenism. He kind of just left it at that in the first edition of Systema Naturae, right? Skin color and continent. So in his later 10th edition, which was 1758, the attributes that he assigns to these four subdivisions of humans get more numerous and start to kind of like veer into characteristics that are actually behavioral, like, he says they're innate characteristics of these subspecies, but he's talking about things like temperament, appearance, personality, personal style of dress or tattooing or, you know, bodily adornment. You're looking very red today. Yeah, even yeah. social regulations. And this is important because these terms, the white Europeans, the brown or yellow Asians, red Americans, black Africans, they implicitly rank the races as more or less superior. And, of course, they stereotype groups with things like, you know, black Africans oil their skin, things like that. Just these silly things. And the rankings come across as these permanent essential categories in the sense that he's saying, you know, a European or an African looks like this and acts like this. Of course, who ends up first? Europeans are always, always first, right? Then Asians, then Native Americans and Africans at the bottom. In these attributes that he attaches in the 10th edition to these four groups, he says that Europeans are intellectual and acute and aware. Well, on the other end of the spectrum, he says Africans are crafty and lazy and careless. So even though he never actually uses the word race, right, Linnaeus was the first to stereotype and kind of lay out a hierarchy that indicated supposedly innate value of these four human groups based on things that he saw as essential or natural intellectual and behavioral traits that made some superior to others. I mean, like the consequences there, you know, they're pretty far reaching. For starters, consider that Linnaeus's first two characteristics in the first edition where he only used skin color and continent, those are still the most common ways that people kind of think about racial difference today. That's true. Yeah. And what's more, those four racial groups were adopted by others, persisting even into the U.S. census until the year 2000 when a fifth group was added, oh. Pacific Islanders. Right. So it's pretty, in my opinion, hard to estimate the importance of what Linnaeus did here. Not to mention the fact that he was a highly respected scientist who was making sort of like situating these four human subgroups in a very sciencey publication alongside quartz and everything else, and maybe giving some of the heaviest, like early scientific weight to this idea of separate races. So that's why I think he's number one. What do you guys think? He also was a very important person. Just ask him. <laughs> uh, right. Linnaeus he, himself would say, God creates and I classify. That's you right. Know, he, he loved himself. He was God's right-hand man, basically, on the planet at that time. Wow, wow. Yeah. Okay, are you ready for one more, guys? And one more. Honorable mention. I think, should go to recreational genomics companies like 23andMe. What do you think? Does that sound reasonable? I'm on for it. Why? Okay, why? Because I think they are one of the most presently visible forces right now in society that make ancestry and thus race seem purely genetic and readable through science. They're really prominent. They're really popular. 
everybody knows about them. And I know that when all three of us have taught about race and science, one of the questions we have gotten in the past is, if race isn't biological, then how can 23andMe know that I'm half Asian, right? Yeah, totally. We did a whole episode, which is one of my favorite episodes actually ever, about ancestry companies. So go check it out if you haven't yet. And we talk in that episode about how commercials for 23andMe show people discovering new aspects of their ancestry and sort of like changing the way they think about and their own identity and even the way that they present themselves sort of through the wonders of genomic science. Mm. They don't talk about race. So kind of like Linnaeus, right? They're not using that word. They only call it ancestry. But you could argue that because of what I just said about Linnaeus, we know that continental ancestry translates to most people as information about one's racial makeup, right? So if you found out that you had some percentage of Asian ancestry, for instance, you might start looking for Asian features in your face. Maybe. I don't know. Or like the guy in the commercial, if you find out you've got Scottish ancestry, you might start wearing a kilt or whatever, right? Instead of lederhosen. Right. The problem is that the techniques that companies like 23andMe use to determine ancestry are proprietary. And the results they produce differ depending on the analysis method used and on the sample that they're comparing your genetic information to. Some companies even admit this in their own disclaimers. Just for perspective, they use two one hundredths of 1% of your DNA for these analyses to look for ancestry informative markers. So, I mean, we're talking about a minuscule amount of your total yeah. genome. And each company picks and chooses different parts of the genome to look at. So if you happen to be someone who has ancestry that's not very well represented in the sample they're comparing you to, or if they happen to just skip over the portion of your genome that flags a particular part of your ancestry, it just won't show up in your results. I don't know about you guys, but I have had my ancestry tested by two separate companies with pretty different results. And even though I did this like six plus years ago, I still get updated ancestry estimates all <laughs> the time, right? So Different ones. Different, yeah. Sometimes yeah. I've got a little bit of, you know, Middle Eastern ancestry <laughs> that pops up and other times it completely disappears and I'm entirely French or whatever. And again, the reason I think these guys deserve honor mention is because they're socially really popular and really prominent. And I think their mere existence and sort of science marketing really goes a long way toward reinforcing general populations perceptions that ancestry and therefore race are encoded in our genes. I don't think there's anything else in modern culture that reifies biology as race. Absolutely. Like these guys do. That's yeah. a great point. I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian of science. I'm Jim uh the uh <laughs> do you still want to claim biological anthropology after Carl <laughs> my 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 academic uncle sure yeah the physical anthropologist and uh you've been listening to speaking of race find us on facebook at sor podcast on twitter and instagram at speaking of race and wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening his use of colors makes me think of lucky charms <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes. We can Thank cut you that. for that. I don't know why, because Lucky Charms are like pink and blue. Magically delicious. They are. <laughs> Did you know there was a, a period in high school where I ate Lucky Charms three meals a day? That is absolutely the outro. <laughs> yep.